This is Rick Thomas, and you're listening to the Life Over Coffee podcast. Thank you so much for being here. This is episode 299. I've been thinking about this episode for a while. The title of it is How to Interact with a Pastor with Known Sin. This is a big deal. We are, it, it seems like always, all the time, there is something moving through the, the radio waves, so to speak about some pastor in a known sin or being accused of sin or a church that has failed in interacting with a person in known sin. This doesn't go away. It's sad, uh, but it is part of the reality of living in a fallen world. You and I, we are sinful people, therefore we do sinful things. And so it's not unusual for a pastor or ministry leader to be in known sin. We should not be overly shocked by that. We could be disappointed by it, but we shouldn't be shocked because this is just the reality of of what it's like to live as fallen people in a fallen world. One national leader asked me a few years ago, talking about a pastor who was caught in adultery, he said, how could that happen? I've interacted with this pastor so many times. We've done shows together and so forth and, and so on. And I'm thinking, do you really hear what you are, you are saying? This is what we do. It does happen, and nobody is impervious to it, no matter how broad our ministry is, how famous we are, or unfamous we are. Sin is no respecter of persons, and we all can succumb to the temptations of it and be lured in it and do do horrible things. And because of that, we want to know it's vital that we know how to interact with people, churches, the people involved when a pastor is in a known sin. And so I want to talk about that in this podcast Let's say that you're on a church staff and you're part of a church's leadership team, and you become aware of a fellow leader in known sin. Now, when you hear that, here's something that I don't want you to hear. I'm just using being on a church staff and part of a church's leadership team as an illustration. And what I don't want you to hear is, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not on a church staff. I'm not part of a leadership team, so I can set this one out. No, you can't. If you are a Christian, we don't sit these things out. Christianity is not a spectator sport where we watch other people do the work of ministry, where we watch other people participate in in these kinds of restoration needs within the church. If you know any person, a brother or sister, and you have relationship and context, you have the knowledge and the opportunity Uh, You don't want to shut yourself off to what you may need to do. And so when I say that you're on a church staff and you're part of a church's leadership team and you become aware of a fellow leader in known sin, well, this applies to all of us. What I'm going to share with you applies to every one of us. And so the question is, how do you help that person? What are some things you should consider with a brother or sister who is in a trap? I'm using Paul's language in Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a trap is what he's talking about. If anyone is caught, how do you practically restore such a person while you're keeping a watch on yourself? Well, in this episode, I want to give you 10 ideas to help a struggling leader. Let me jump into it. Number one. First of all, I'm broadening the scope in this episode. I am not interacting with a specific sin intentionally. I am widening the scope to provide general guidelines that you will need to apply 
according to the specifics of the situation, the individual, and the context that you are in. I'm doing that on purpose because I don't want to deal with a specific sin. I want to give you these general ideas that apply across the board, regardless of the sin. And that's where you will have to act pneumatically, asking the Spirit of God to eliminate your mind, to give you insight on the specifics of your unique situation, assuming there's a unique situation in front of you. And then maybe you want to talk to other people so that you can gather the practical insight that you need from others and from the Lord as you read Scripture to make those applications that are unique and specific to you. And so point number one, I'm broadening the scope to give general guidelines that you can narrow like a funnel. You can narrow in a microscopic way to the unique situation. Sexual sin obviously is more severe, but these thoughts that I'm sharing will apply to any person in a habituated sinful pattern. Point number one, I'm broadening the scope. Point number two is the person disqualified. This always comes up. I'm mentioning it now just to get it out of the way. Is he disqualified from ministry? There will be some situations where the leader should never be in a position of leadership again, like sexual sin, for example, or abusive situations, or maybe legal action. And maybe you can think of a couple other things, but there, there are situations where the person should, should never be in ministry again. There can be other roles for this individual, but not in a leadership position. Is the person qualified for ministry? Is he disqualified? Now, this conversation is essential, but here's what I want you to hear under this point, and this is why I'm making it. The idea of qualification and disqualification is not the most essential thing right now. The most critical talking point will be the restoration of the leader and the restoration of all those involved, the family, the church. The most important thing is about restoration. And the reason I say this is because sometimes, and I've dealt with leaders who have been caught in some sin, and that's one of the first things they say. It's one of the reasons they don't come forward in the first place because they don't want to be disqualified. They don't want to lose their ministry. They want to, don't want to lose their reputation. They don't want to lose whatever, fill in the blank. And then sometimes people who are helping, they, they want to talk about this first. And I, I move this to a, a tertiary moment, but not the primary thing. It would be best to focus on restoring the captured soul and restoring those who are affected by the captured soul. There's no question that he's disqualified right now. If there's an habituation, a habituated pattern of sin, he must, or she must step down, must take a time out, must go sit on the bench, and then we'll just push disqualification down the road for now. And let's work on the more important thing of bringing restoration to all the parties involved. Point number three is deception. A leader in known sin over an extended period is a liar. I want you to think about that statement. I know it's strong language, but I imagine that some folks will, will be blind to the comprehensive scope of what is happening or what has been happening in 
the leader's life. And that's why I use that strong language, because they need to hear what I'm saying plainly and clearly. A leader in known sin over an extended period is a liar too. It's similar to James calling anger murder. Uh, James wants to get our attention. He wants us to know fully what is going on with the angry person. Well, a person who is in a habituation of sin is also deceptive. Let me illustrate it this way. When a person is in adultery, for example, or porn, or a gay lifestyle, or any other sexual sin, there is deception happening. You see, you have to cover that up. It's not just the sin that they are doing, and they're doing as a pattern, but part of staying in a sinful pattern is being deceptive. This truth applies to any sinful, addictive behavior. Let, let's say that a, a person has an alcohol problem, that they are, they're drinking, they're a drunkard, they get drunk, they go and they spend their money on alcohol, they, they drink all the time, they know that it's wrong, therefore him to know to do good and does not do it to him it is sin, he's very aware that this is a sin. Well, what he has to do, because his conscience is, is pricking his heart, he has to be deceptive. He plays it down. He makes excuses. He justifies. He hides it from his spouse, hides it from his family, doesn't let others know. There becomes a pattern of deception. And so when you're dealing with a leader in a habituation, a sin that's been going on over an extended period, then also know that there is a word cloud that is now gathering over him, not just the sin that we're talking about, but part of that word cloud, you will see the word deception and liar that is hovering over him too. Why is this important? Well, you want to have, point number four, guarded trust of this individual. You see, Synonyms to lying are such things as deception, secrecy, lack of honesty, lack of transparency, justifying, rationalizing, and so forth. When a person uses deception to feed his lust, he cannot be trusted. And, of course, he must not be leading anyone, and that's why you have to have this person step down, to step aside, to sit out. Not only is there a sin, whatever that may be, but there is a pattern of deception accompanying that sin, and you better have guarded trust. I'm not asking you just to be suspicious of, of everything that he says and does. I'm asking you to be discerning. And there's a difference between being suspicious and being discerning, and you have to be discerning because it's not just the sin that he has been acting out. There's a pattern of deception that permits him to act out that sin. So point number one, I broadened the scope to talk about all sin, any sin. Point number two, I brought up disqualification, it's an important discussion, but restoration is more important right now. Point number three is deception. Number four, guarded trust. 
And then point number five is hard heart. Part of the repercussion of deception is the hardening of the conscience. Conscience means co-knowledge, con-science, co-knowledge, our inner voice. And whenever you start lying about what you are doing, you begin to lay down a thin layer over your conscience, and it will go from dull to hard which is one of the worst conditions for a believer because after a while your inner voice will will not be saying anything. You will not be able to hear. The first time that you do the sin, your conscience is biblically informed and it goes off on you and it's just ringing loudly that you need to stop this. And then you start bringing in deception because you don't want to stop it. And so you justify your actions, you blame someone for it, you make excuses, you play it down. It's just a little sin. No one has to know. It can't hurt anyone. I need a break today, like you're going to McDonald's. Whatever you do, however you play that, what you do is lay down this thin layer over your conscience. Initially, it will be dull. Later, it will be hard, and then eventually there will be no clarity because of the continuous quenching and grieving of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is quenched and grieved. Illumination is not happening. It's like a dimmer on a light switch where you're just turning the light down until the room fully darkens, and then you are flying blind. And when you're flying blind, you need someone to come alongside and to lead competently. And that's why I've been saying that this is not a spectator sport for any of us. When you know a person who is caught in sin, you can't accommodate them. You don't have to put it on the internet. That's not the starting place. But you need to initiate an action because restoration has to happen. And because the person is a liar, there is deception going on. You want to be very guarded about how you approach this person, knowing that you have to have your discernment at a a very high level. And part of that is because the person, after a while, they don't even know They can't even see, perceive that they are lying because their conscience has become so dull to what they have been doing. Number five, hard heart. And so you want to step in with competence and courage, and you want to lead this person. You want to penetrate through the darkness, through the dimming of of the light, and you want to bring light to this person to help them to see What they are doing, they need restoration. Point number six, confession. One of the indicators that you're looking for in a repenting person is them confessing to you more than what you already know. You see, a person who is truly broken has nothing to hide. And what normally happens, sadly, in a situation like this, is that the person only confesses what you already know, but their confession does not outdistance what you already know. So many times in counseling where 
a person comes in, maybe it's a marriage situation, and and one spouse comes in, they're caught, and the caught spouse only tells me what has been found out, that they don't tell me more than what is found out. And that's a person who is not serious. They're still guarding and they still are protecting. A person in sin knows more about their sin than you do. And if they're not telling you more than what you already know about it, then they haven't come clean yet. It is more crucial for this kind of person to guard their reputation. They want to be right with God, maybe, but they don't want to be right with God enough to tell all of what has been going on. In most situations with the broken soul, they will confess to you more than what you knew already about the situation. But if you have to negotiate a person's, a person's repentance while pulling teeth to get the truth out of them, then you're not dealing with a broken person who is ready to change. If you want to see a good template of what confession looks like, read Psalm 51. You just you can hear the spirit of David as he is just full bore. He's all out confessing against you and you only have I sinned, O God. And he just goes on and on. Purge me with hyssop. Make me whiter than snow. And he continues on. And you hear the brokenness of this individual. But what happens too often is that the confession is is incremental or not forthcoming at all. They have been caught and they can't get out of it. And so they confess that, yes, you caught me. I stole the piece of candy. And they don't tell you anything more. And so what you're looking for in a confession is a person that their confession outdistances public awareness because they are truly broken. If they're not, you want to be careful with this person because... 99 times out of 100, there is more going on than what you know. Point number six is confession. Number seven, church repercussions. Then you have the issue of parents and children in the church. Now, let me illustrate. Let's say that a leader is in sexual sin, and they have oversight of their children the children's ministry. Actually, it doesn't even matter if they have, I mean, it does matter, but in one sense, it doesn't matter if they have oversight of the children. The fact that they are a leader and they have some kind of impact on children, or they can be in a place uh, to where they can be with children, well, then you have a huge problem on your hand. You cannot let this go. You have to stop this immediately. There has to be a breaking, a severance, an uncoupling from the leader and any leadership responsibility that he or she may have in the church. They may not have direct supervision over the teens, but he's a leader, and he cannot be in any private situation with a child. Let me put it, let me reframe this. If I were a parent, and I knew that one of the pastors had, let's say, a, 
a secret sexual sin pattern? I would not just sound the alarm. (laughs) I would be over the moon angry if they left this person in a leadership position. I would probably, if they continued that, I would probably leave the church after calling the law. If it's a sexual, calling the right authorities, if it's a, a sexual sin. And I would consider leaving the church if the leadership did not deal with it. And I would call the appropriate authorities. This is point number seven, church repercussions. Now, I'm talking on the bigger scale of abuse or, or sexual sin. There are some things that need to happen, and you cannot be silent But then also, a leader in a habituated sin pattern is a leader. And so you have somebody who's part of the worship set on Sunday morning. They're standing on stage. People standing on stage, they are leaders. And there's implications, there's connotations to that. You know, I I want my children to look at those people standing on stage, and there should be an assumption that these people are pursuing holiness, not perfected holiness, but there is a objective presence of holiness in their lives, and they want to do what is right. They do love God. They do love others. I mean, that's part of the responsibility of being on stage. We point to them. They are highlighted. We are looking at them. We take our cues from them. If they're in the worship band, if they have some other role in the church, children's ministry. They get up and lead in prayer on Sunday morning in the corporate setting. They teach, preach, etc. Whatever the leader, or, or in children's ministry, whatever the leadership role is, we're all pointing to them and saying that is a leader. And there's connotations that we attach to that person as a leader. And so there are church repercussions. They can be heavyweight, severe, as I was talking earlier, when there's sexual sin and so forth involved. But there's repercussions no matter what the degree of the sin is. Therefore, you have to deal with it. There are church repercussions, number seven. Number eight, legal recourse. Then you have liability issues in play. If the worst happened, for example, a pastor acting out on a minor This child would struggle for the rest of his or her life. This would be absolutely devastating uh, for this child. And the church would be liable if they did not deal with this appropriately, and in this case, under this point, legally. This situation is dangerous, and in some cases, you need to seek an attorney You need to call Child Protective Services. You need to go down other legal avenues because the severity of the sin warrants it. This is what happened with Sovereign Grace Ministries, where a gentleman was sentenced 40 years in prison, but yet it was covered up for, I don't remember, it was in the early 80s, and it only came out, and the legal action happened in the 2000s, and so that's the time frame. But the church did not deal with this, and the only reason the church leaders got off the hook was for the statute of limitations. And if you talk to them about it, they would say that they weren't prosecuted, but it was a legal technicality. It's more squirming and divisiveness and diversions on their part, but they did not do it the right way. 
Covering up these types of sins is a horrendous thing, and it will have generational adverse effects on some of the folks associated with it, leaving a leader in place with such a pattern of sin It sends a clear message about the church's leadership view of sin, which is a low view. It also sends a clear message of the church's view of the church, that we really don't care about you at the level in which the New Testament would would ask shepherds to shepherd their sheep. Point number eight, legal recourse. Sometimes you have no choice and you need to do it. Number nine, family dynamics. Many of these leaders have spouses, they have children, they have parents, and you want to care for them. They are not just part of the congregation, but they are intimately involved and appropriately devastated by what is happening. They are within the inner circle of the person who is, who is caught. Therefore, the devastation and the intimate involvement that they have will be, it, it would be exponential compared to others who are farther out on those relationship rings. Their temptations, their insecurities will be all over the map. And so it would be best if you targeted provided targeted, precise, and comprehensive care to the family members for an extended period. You want to care for their souls because this is, this is just a horrible thing for them, that they have to carry the weight of this all of their lives. And so there are family dynamics in play. And so as you care for the church body and as you communicate the proper community message— There's even more intricate care that needs to happen to those who are closer to the person who is caught. And then finally, number 10 is corporate culpability. James 4, 17 says, if you know to do good but do not do it, well, it will be sin. There is a template for confrontation in Matthew 18. You go to the person privately. Hopefully you can work it out. And then that's the end of it. Of course, if it's a sexual sin, it's not the end of it. You don't cover up those types of things. But you go to the person privately and you begin working it out. The temptation from a sinning, from the sinning leader's peers is not to do anything about it or to play it off, make excuses, maybe even cover up for him or be his defense attorney or succumb to fear. In worst cases, the leader has power over his peers. That is a very common thing because if a person, go back to the deception thing I was talking about earlier, if a person has an habituated pattern of sins, there is a word cloud that begins to gather over them. Deception will be one of them as they want to maintain their reputation, maintain their power, maintain their revenue stream, their jobs, their careers, maintain control Well, now control is a part of the dynamic of the sinning person. And not just controlling the narrative of their own reputation and their own lives, but they have to control others so they can control the narrative of their own lives. And so now they start controlling others, and that can become very manipulative. 
And in the worst case situations of this, the leader has power over his peers and they submit to his unbridled authority. This happens. And I have been part of this. I have been under the unbridled authority of an abusive leader, and it puts you in a tough spot. In my situation, it's like, I'm out. I quit. And that's a hard decision to make, because frequently the peer group will place more value on keeping their jobs over doing the right thing. This tension is real, and so I'm not going to harangue anybody here. But I do want to call attention to this. I don't want to be harsh toward them unnecessarily because most of us would act similarly. Uh, You think about it like what's going on in our political culture right now. There are people who will not say what they want to say because of loss of reputation, loss of job. I don't want to be harsh toward them. I understand, but still yet they need to grow a backbone. Still yet, there's not an excuse. There is not an excuse to let known sin thrive in any culture. If you do, you will be guilty when you know to do good, but you choose not to do it. Point number 10, corporate uh, culpability. Episode 299, how to interact with a pastor with known sin. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Go make disciples. Thank you so much for listening. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.